Good morning, everyone. It is the 4th of October. My name is Lorna Denny, and I'm joined today by Alex Byrne and Asim Kadri. It was a messy end to September for both the equity and the bond markets. The price of oil jumped above $80 a barrel for the first time in three years. And this, in combination with some declining growth indicators, raised the spectre of stagflation. That's always a troubling prospect for the markets. Alex, inflation was very much at the centre of European Central Bank rhetoric this week. Did you get the sense that Christine Lagarde was trying to play it down? Morning, Lorna. We definitely say this is the case, but I can't say that she's alone in that. The majority of central banks have been doing this for over a year now and trying to coin this transitory effect of, of inflation. Despite the fact of transitory, it, it does still have a real effect on the economy. Consumers still have to pay for it. Someone has to foot the bill. It was in response to the 3.4% increase in consumer prices, which was slightly ahead of expectation. It, even the fact of if we look at core inflation, that is slightly more than expected. This X's out fuel and food. But again, people still have to pay those elements. So it is having a real effect on the economy, or at least you, you would expect, even in the short term, if it is transitory, that it is having an effect on the economy. This is off the back of the central bank already increasing its inflation outlook twice this year. Despite this, they're still trying to talk around this transitory effect, the short-term nature. It is true that a lot of these effects seem to be on the more temporary side, so some supply chain issues, fuel, food, some industrial materials, and obviously the ongoing issues around tech and semiconductors. You would hope that in time, a lot of these supply chains would catch up and obviously these effects would wane. So you would expect, hopefully, that this is a temporary measure, but again, people still have to pay for this in the meantime. But the main thing is that it's clear, at least in the short term, that the ECB isn't going to react to this unless we get a significant move away or the, the timing of this move significantly outwards. Yes, it does take a while for all this to work through. As indeed with the German elections, we started the week with early indications of a centre-left victory in Germany. Have we seen any progress towards a coalition in the meantime? Not necessarily, but I don't think anyone ever expected it to be a clear decision on the night. Just as a bit of background, the two main parties in the centre part of German politics are the CDU, centre-right, which is Merkel's old party, and the SDP, which is the centre-left. Very slightly edged SDP on the night. They have the first dibs on making the new government. Importantly, or what was encouraging was that the fringe parties on the far left and far right got less of the vote this time round than they did a few years back. As an indication, last time around, it took five months worth of talks to get to a coalition. It may well revert to the grand coalition of CDU and SDP just because of simplicity. And in the meantime, we've obviously got Merkel who will continue as caretaker until a new government is formed. Thank you for explaining that. And it looks like we may well be revisiting that story over the coming months. But I've seen the other big story running currently is the potential meltdown of China's property giant Evergrande. Has the company come any closer to either collapse or rescue? Hi, Lorna. So, yeah, there were a few developments last week. So, firstly, we saw Evergrande miss another interest payment to overseas investors. That was following the payment it missed the previous week. So, the company was due to pay foreign bondholders 47.5 million US dollars by Wednesday. Wednesday, but bondholders reported that they hadn't received any payments. So as with the previous payment, the company has a 30-day grace period before the missed payment officially becomes a default. There was also a further development last week when the company announced that it was selling its $1.5 billion stake in a commercial bank as it seeks to raise the money it still owes to various parties. But clearly that amount is still dwarfed by the company's total liabilities, which exceed $300 billion. Generally speaking, uncertainty remains huge as Evergrande hasn't made any statements 
statements about these payments that have been due over recent weeks or more broadly about the current situation. But interestingly, what we have seen over recent days is a surge by distressed debt funds and individual investors to buy Evergrande bonds as they bet that Beijing will not allow the company to collapse. Yes, that is interesting. But if we return to the growth indicators I mentioned earlier, we had in China a rather troubling index of factory activity for September. Yes, that's right. Manufacturing activity in China suffered its first official contraction since the beginning of the pandemic, with the manufacturing PMI reading falling to 49.6 in September, below the 50 threshold which separates contraction from expansion. We've spoken in recent weeks about how economic growth in China has slowed over recent months, but these figures are one of the clearest signs thus far of this weakness. So a number of factors have contributed to this, namely severe power shortages, the slowdown across the property sector amid the troubles there, and also the outbreaks of the Delta variant. Commentators have increasingly been highlighting the impact of energy shortages that have arisen due to the environmental targets the Chinese government is looking to meet, and also supply constraints. So this has affected manufacturers across the country and has been a big driver behind the widespread downgrade to China's economic growth forecast for this year. For example, Goldman Sachs last week cut their 2021 GDP forecast for China to 7.8%, down from 8.2%. So clearly it's concerning times at the moment for the Chinese economy, and there likely will need to be a change in government policy for growth to not slow further. Yes, we'll see how that develops. But near term this week, September PMIs will be top of the data releases. Alex? Yes, so we've got PMIs out this week. On the US side of things, we expect a slight decrease. This is mostly coming from the service side of things. And it's because obviously of the ongoing drag from Delta, if you like, those virus sensitive sectors, which are continuing to to see headwinds, less so on the manufacturing side. In Europe, it's less interesting. So overall, the PMI numbers look fairly steady, obviously still at that very, very high level. There are some slight movements in between with the potential for some of those peripheries to be slightly lower on the services side of things, but mainly fairly steady on the European side. And finally, then on Friday from the US, we have the non-farm payrolls and unemployment data. Yes, so non-farms, the expectation is 460,000 versus the disappointing 235,000 last month. On the unemployment, slightly lower, 5.1% versus 5.2% last month. Obviously, non-farms disappointed last month, so there's some potential for a bit of catch-up there. The number could be slightly higher than expectations also because of some more technical factors that expired back end of August and the start of September. So, namely, some unemployment benefits elapsed in September, which may have helped those numbers and forced but back into the workforce. The vast majority of schools also reopened in the main part in September, which again means that most people have or have a, more of a reason to go back to work or at least back to the office. However, on the headwind side of things, the Delta variant continues to ravage some states quite badly, which goes some way to explaining potentially that lower PMI services number in the US, which has obviously hurt restaurants and service sectors mostly. Thank you both very much indeed. Thank you, Lorna. Thank you, Lorna.